Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Once upon a time. Broadway Podcast Network presents Giants in the Sky, How Sondheim and Lapine Went into the Woods. With me, Ben Rimmelauer. Today's guest, Ira Weitzman. Ira Weitzman is the Mindich Musical Theater Associate Producer at Lincoln Center Theater. In his various roles as dramaturg, associate producer, and producer, he has been a vital and instrumental creative force shepherding the original development of some of the most beloved and impactful musicals of the past 45 years, including Sondheim and Lapine's Into the Woods, Sunday in the Park with George, and Passion, as well as Sondheim's Assassins and the Frogs, and William Finn and James Lapine's Falsettos and a New Brain, plus Parade, The Light in the Piazza, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Once on This Island, and Marie Christine, along with many others, not to mention some of the most acclaimed revivals and off-Broadway productions. So I, I think I understand, come from the progressive uh, Jewish uh, New York background, and I know that you were like just like a kid fresh out of high school when you went and worked... Uh, was it for Bob Moss at um, Playwrights Horizons? Yes. Bob gave me my first job in the theater, although it was not my first actual job. I, I was working as a teenager in radio, and I was very lucky to have uh, found a little niche. I have found little niches for myself all throughout my career, and they've been very lucky for me because they've been exactly the right ones at the right time. Yeah. and. Um, I was taken under the wing of somebody who produced concerts for radio, who taught me how to produce concerts as a teenager. So my very, very first job was as a concert producer of live radio concerts in non 
nonprofit, non-commercial radio. Was that? But I really had a passion for theater, and I eclectic all kinds of music, everything from the Juilliard string quartet to the, you know, Ghanaian drum ensemble, and every possibility. Anything Broadway related, and it was a great. No, I, um, well, no, not true. I, I did a radio, I did an original radio musical written by Galt McDermott, the composer of Hair, of course, 70s, yeah. something like that. I don't even remember the name of it. Anyway, I, I mean, I dabbled in theatrically themed concerts occasionally and I also uh, as a sideline did radio programs about theater and I was really educating myself in theater and at the same time well I think I was educating myself because I had a passion for it and the passion was just beginning to bubble up yeah because I really didn't know what there was for me out in the world to do. I, I was really kind of searching for that. And I was very young. So it was the right thing to do at that age. And yeah. Uh, I I ended up uh feeling like radio was not my thing. And I I um got a tip off that Bob Moss was looking for an assistant. Bob Moss was the founder of Playwrights Horizons in the uh early 1970s. Yeah and the first artistic director there. And I had a tip that he was looking for an assistant. So my first job at a radio is kind of a great all-around apprenticeship. I learned a lot about theater. I, I did every job, you know, because we all, it was kind of an all hands on deck, off, off Broadway, no money yeah. universe where we all kind of did everything. And so I learned a lot. And, and I understand in. You're I'm the sorry. one that brought, I understand you're the one that, that launched the musical theater uh, at Playwrights with In Trousers. Yes. I was just about to say that after a year working with Bob, I think my, my real passion was, or my real desire to find a place in were musicals. And musicals were not something that Playwrights Horizons had uh, been able to do. You know, they're costly, they're tricky, they're fragile, they're complicated. The nonprofit did not really, outside of the public theater, which was one notable exception, really the nonprofit theaters in those days, even the regional theaters, did not really dabble in musicals. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of a pioneering territory. And for me, it was, I, I thought, why aren't we doing musicals? Our, our charter was to support the development of new American plays. And, uh, and I went to Andre at one point, Andre Bishop, who by then had taken over from yeah. Bob, the uh, artistic director. And I said, can't we do the same for musical people that we are doing in supporting playwrights? And being a kind of New York, not a kind of, being a New York kid and a lover of musicals himself, he heartily agreed. And that was how musicals came to playwrights. And yes, the first one, again, a very lucky kind of break at the right time in the right place. The first person I met writing musicals was William Finn. 
and I was invited to a, uh, a well, a reading, I suppose you'd call it at that point. It was uh, just a presentation of a song cycle he'd been doing called In Trousers, and this was my dream come true. This was exactly what I fantasized about. I mean, I'm a 21-year-old, you know, high school dropout with a passion for developing of a passion for musical theater. The first person I meet is William Finn. The first show I get to work on is in Trousers. So really that set the stage for both us at Playwrights Horizons and me as a um, individual um, in really devoting myself to the development of musicals. And uh, I mean, well, did that score blow your mind? I mean, I, I guess you'd worked with Galt McDermott. I assume you had some taste for rock and roll also. Um... Yeah, but rock and roll was separate from theater music at the time, you know? I mean, it was that period of time, you know, there was about 20 years in between the height of the Rodgers and Hammerstein era and the height of the Stephen Sondheim era. Yeah. Where, um, as you know, pop music, rock music was not really a part of theater. Right. I mean, hair, you know, hair was a special kind of hybrid to me. Right. And I, and you're quite right. I loved hair growing up. That was my father's album was hair. Mm-hmm. My mother's was South Pacific. My father's was hair. And my father was the more conservative parent, believe it or not. So it was kind of odd, but uh, anyway, I, I I I loved hair. So the Gaul McDermott thing was a fun detour. Uh, but no, I I think I was grown up. Uh, I was raised as part of the Sondheim era. I call it the Sondheim era, where he was beginning to dominate the innovations in musical theater. And now, you know, people have talked now for 20 years about all the sort of wannabe Sondheims and, you know, sometimes even derogatorily, they'll talk about uh, up and coming composers that way. Was there a crop of sort of wannabe Sondheims already in the late 70s? Because certainly it's the, all those great shows had happened in the 70s already. Was that, did you hear that influence? I mean, certainly you can hear it in, in Trousers, I would guess. Yeah, Billy Finn had a lot of influence. He was very influenced by the singer-songwriters that were beginning to emerge at the time. He had a kind of a vocal uh, layering um, interest the way someone like Laura Nero used to do. Yeah. Um, He wrote in a more confessional first-person style, even though it was veiled in character. Yeah. And you know, not necessarily overtly autobiographical, but yes, he was writing from himself, which is something that theater writers had not really done. Right. Um, So Billy Finn was a slight bridge between the two worlds. I would not call the, I I would call the admirers of Sondheim's work, um, I wouldn't call them wannabes. You know, we look back on it and, of course, nobody could ever reach the genius and the heights of Sondheim and Sondheim together with his collaborators. And so now, you know, it appears like 
And it was true that he was the pinnacle of a certain kind of writing that we all know and love now. And there were people, I think, who admired it, young writers like me, who, yes, I, you know, for me, Company was my first show that I attended as a sentient teenager, you know, as somebody that actually was beginning to be an adult. Yeah. And I, I was starting to go to theater on my own and I went to company and company was a little bit probably beyond my understanding, but the sound and the scope of it was clearly something new and different than I had listened to on albums before or seen in theater before. Probably the only show I'd seen before or one of the few shows on Broadway I'd seen before company was, um, you know, MAME. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of the polar opposite of songwriting yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, anyway, young people, I think there were a lot of young people who were inspired by the intelligence and innovation. Yeah, I, I didn't, that was a non-serious comment. I just meant the influence of Sondheim, you know, uh, at that era. I mean, because I imagine if you were looking to bring new musicals to playwrights in the late 70s, you were listening to a lot of, I don't know, demos, readings, reading scripts, you know. Um and uh, I guess from that time, James Lapine started working at Playwrights before uh, before Sunday in the Park with George happened. So did you have a relationship with Lapine before you had a relationship with Sondheim, personally, I mean? Oh, yes. I, um, I had a very strong relationship with James from the very beginning. Uh, James's first play at Playwrights Horizons followed in trousers Mm. in the main stage theater. It was called Table Settings. Yes. Actually followed in trousers in the studio theater, which was a smaller theater. Mm. I believe it transferred, you know, we were into transferring from the smaller to the larger theater phase or something was, uh, because the smaller theater was of course considered more experimental and a little more um, uh, risky and all of that. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I, 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 I knew Lapine well. I was, you know, my first encounters with Lapine was, it was not only with table settings, but as a, um, graphic designer, mm-hmm. uh, because I asked James to design the album cover for In Trousers and, um, which he agreed to do. And Bill Finn was then, you know, he was the most charming contrarian you would ever meet (laughs) because the answer to everything was always no. (laughs) But it was said in the most charming and wonderful way that you just thought, no, yes, no is a fine answer. (laughs) And uh, Lapine, you know, designed several different versions of the album cover in Oven Trousers. And Bill Finn, who I... Finn probably had some kind of executive producer authority on the album or certainly approval, you know. It was, it was, (laughs) and he was being his kind of wonderful contrarian self, uh, Bill Finn. So he would reject all the album covers except, you know, the one that was the least favorite of both Lapine and me. <laughs> and, I should um, clarify just for the listeners that Lapine had no involvement in In Trousers other than this um, 
fascinating tidbit that you're telling us about his graphic design work. I mean, he was, this is prior to their collaboration on the shows, right? I mean. Correct. But then it led directly. Did Finn direct direct trousers too? No. You're quite right. He was not involved in the production of In Trousers. However, he was involved in the community of Playwrights Arise. Yeah, interesting. And community is proximity, and proximity is collaboration, ultimately, Mm. if you want to draw a direct line. And um, we all knew, you know, Bill Finn in those days was... He was an auteur. He had to wrap his arms around the whole project. Mm -hmm. And Trousers was something that he wrote. He started, he directed. I mean, there really wasn't a hat he didn't wear except, you know, the the three ladies in the cast and uh, maybe the set designer. And um, we were, as our commitment to Bill Finn got more serious, which it did right away, because he was clearly such a... um, unique and uh, glorious talent. Um, And we all were, we were trying to figure out what is the organic collaboration that is gonna push Bill Finn forward, take him out of himself because it's really impossible to be the writer, director, star, and, you know, play all the parts except the winner. Uh, you know, at the same time, and, you know, to write and write a new work. So, you know, I think that's where the proximity of Lapine yeah. came in. And uh, Andre, at some point, introduced Lapine to Finn, and, you know, the rest is history. You know, right. Andre. Okay, I want to push ahead a little bit, but I think this is Please interesting do. because it seems like, in a sense, the collaboration between Lapine and Finn that I'm only learning today, as I'm sure many people will be, began with the graphic design for the album cover of In Trousers, led to March of the Falsettos, big success for Playwrights Horizons as a musical theater producer and for Ira Weitzman. And um, I have to imagine that that, in a sense, was partly uh, responsible for the inspiration either to you or... Um, Andre or or Lapine himself or Sondheim, you know, that that began the collaboration of Sondheim and Lapine for Sunday in the Park. Is that right? Yes. Um, what happened was Andre, um, after Bob Moss uh, left and uh, Andre became the artistic director, Andre appointed a group of playwrights to be in residence at Playwrights Horizons to essentially be the resident writers Mm. from whom the seasons would draw from and then of course branch out from there and they all received a commission and Lapine was one of them and for Lapine's commission he um told us that he had been talking to Sondheim about collaborating on something and that he wanted to develop that as yet unnamed, unknown work as his commission for his residency. So that's basically how Sunday in the Park ended up as, you know, at Playwrights Horizons. I mean, were you over the moon as a sort of Sondheim head? I mean, James Lapine could have said to you, I'm doing table settings too. 
And instead he says, I'm doing a musical with Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, it was, um, first of all, you know, we were, Sondheim was in transition at the time. Yeah. It was just following the failure on Broadway of, you know, the commercial failure of Melody yeah. Roll Along. Yeah. And I think there was a, a din of criticism from the, it was pre-internet. Don't forget, everything was word of mouth back then. Everything were the crowd of people that went to the first preview and then called up all their friends on their touchtone phones and, you know, said, oh, did you, I saw last night. And then, you know, that was the internet of the day. And um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. We don't have to get too much into the weeds on the failure of Merrily Roll Along. But that, I understand that that was a a time yeah, of transition, transitioning. And, and, right. and nobody knew what Sunday in the Park with George would be. And Lapine wrote that wonderful book last year, putting it together that really details how it all came together. And of course, honestly, that book was part of the inspiration for doing this podcast on Into the Woods, because I wanted to get that kind of granular sense of how Into the Woods came together. So I sure. guess I, I want to know, I mean, Sunday in the Park with George, as successful as March of the Falsettos was for you and obviously for Bill Finn and James Lapine and Playwrights Horizons, Sunday in the Park with George, much more so. It moves to Broadway. It's the darling of the New York Times. It wins the Pulitzer Prize, all these Tony Awards or Tony nominations anyway. Um, And so in the midst of that heady success, I mean, you talk about the the transition. Ben, may I may I yeah. interject just only to say that Sunday in the Park with George was a success destine. It was not. It was. You're quite right. It was something that the New York Times wrote about a lot. Yeah. And promoted, and without the internet and all of the many outlets for promotion, you know, that we have today, that kind of thing was important. Yeah. But Sunday was not a universally loved show. Right. No, I understand that. But nonetheless, I mean, that might matter if you're the Schuberts or, you know, Sondheim's agent cashing the checks. But for you uh, at Playwrights Horizons, the nonprofit theater that generated the show, I mean, that was a huge accomplishment for Playwrights Horizons to send this Sondheim musical to Broadway as Pulitzer Prize winning. I mean, I think that that's that's where you're coming from, right? I mean, yes, regardless exactly. of who was, you know, it's one thing to to parse words on the success or failure of Merrily We Roll Along, which was a Broadway flop. Sun in the Park with George losing a Tony to Jerry Herman or not being box office bonzo is still, I think, widely can be seen as a success in our in our purposes, you know. Absolutely. Sorry to nitpick. No, no, I pre listen, I would I couldn't love you more for nitpicking. We want, you know, especially when we're talking about Sondheim. We we cannot uh we cannot speak uh in general terms that don't don't take responsibility for the the nuances, right? But um uh, but in the midst of this heady moment for for Playwrights Horizons, I, when did it first come into your consciousness 
that there was a next collaboration between Sondheim and Lapine and that it even, I don't know if there was even a title, but that, that it was something fairy tale related or what have you. Yes, I, I wish I could remember exactly. Everything was quite organic in those days at Playwrights Horizons. Everything seemed to grow out of the thing that came before it in some mm-hmm. natural way. Um, so I don't have a benchmark where I could say, oh, there was that day that I heard about, you know, um, probably Lapine told me about it, that he was working on it. And I believe he started writing monologues for the various characters, mm-hmm. particularly the baker and the baker's wife, who were inventions of Lapine's. They were not existing fairy yeah. tale characters. He told me they were dealing with the psychology of of um, fairy tales, which is not really actually what they ended up writing about. Right. But we all went out and read Bruno Bettelheim, and, <laughs> you know, started to get into it. And um, I do remember when I first discussed Into the Woods with Sondheim. Uh, that's a nice little story, if you want to hear that. Please. I, um, shortly after... It was either in between Sunday in the Park and Merrily We Roll Along in La Jolla or mm-hmm. slightly after Merrily We Roll Along, more likely. Because um, Merrily was 85 and... Um, and pa- just... Into the Woods was 86, yeah. How, how did you wind up... You had a full-time job at Playwrights Horizons. How did you wind up going to La Jolla with this production of Merrily? Oh, I was Lapine's, essentially, I was Lapine's line producer. I mean, that's what I did at Playwrights. Didn't have a name, you know, it was just, yeah. that's what I mean by I always found the right niche for myself at the right time. But you didn't leave didn't, your job at Playwrights. No, I didn't. But I went to Lapine and I said, hey, count me in. Let's find a job for me on Merrily. I mean, the truth was we were going to do two shows, well, first Merrily, of course, in California, but Lapine wanted to rehearse in New York, which meant that it needed to essentially be produced in New York, you know, our line produced in New York, on a, you know, in terms of the daily, you know, kind of pr- producing um, yeah. responsibilities. Sure. So I ended up, I think my title was dramaturg, but that was not and I did a certain amount of dramaturgy, you know, if you want I to I mean, call did it Playwrights that. Horizons work as a sort of like uncredited shadow producer on the La Jolla Playhouse production of Merrily Rue? No, not at all. It was a completely separate event. It was separate for me. I took a leave of absence. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. It was gotcha. not long, you know, it was a couple of months, really, right. because, yeah. you know, it was a, a month to rehearse, a few weeks to be out in La Jolla. We rehearsed in New York, so it wasn't like I was leaving yeah. my job, you know. And, and this, by the way, this cast was like Chip Zion and um, is it Victor Garber and or John Rubenstein? No, no, no. The Merrily cast was Chip, John Rubenstein, Heather McRae, and Marin Maisie's Marin first Maisie. job. Wow. Her first big break in New York, something I will never, ever, ever forget as long as I live. She stopped the show every single solitary night singing Not a Day Goes By. Amazing. Anyway, um, maybe we could we, we, to flash forward into the yes. woods. Somewhere after the um, 
you know, the Merrily or, or in between Merrily and Sunday. Sure. I, I was asked to introduce Sondheim at a lecture he was giving at, the, at Queens College. Uh-huh. And um, I was not really anybody that important in those days. I'm not quite sure why I was asked to do it. But anyway, I went and uh, they sent a car for us, uh, for Sondheim and me. And um, even though we had done, you know, it was, it was before Merrily because... Um, Sunday in the park, you know, there was a lot of, I think sometime was, um, he, he was very quiet during Sunday in the park with George, you know, he really deferred a great deal to Lapine. He was in a new world. He was in a new milieu in the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. He was in a new world of writing. Um, then I think he had done before. So he was kind of quiet and I didn't really have much alone time or one-on-one time with him at all during Sunday. So when they sent the car for us to pick us up for Queens College um, to go to Queens, I was, I was the, it was really the first time I'd been kind of one-on-one with Steve in a, in a, you know, conversation, you know, in, 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 you know, a conversation that lasted longer than, you know, 10 minutes and here's a checklist, you know, and um, I remember being a little nervous about it and a little um, like, oh, my God, I'm in a car with Steve Sondheim, you know, and all that. Of course. And I said, I said, how's it going? You know, knowing that they were working on Into the Woods, but not really knowing much about it. And Steve said, I remember him saying, you know, Ira, I, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. I've got the five notes the beans mm. he called them the beans mm-hmm. the whole score of into the woods is based on five notes mm. and they are the notes that signified the five beans that yeah. the baker's father has right. stolen and if one listens carefully one can hear those five notes in just about every moment oh, yeah. of every song in into the woods so sometimes said i remember him saying in quite vulnerably um i'm really struggling with it you know i know i want to base the score on these notes i just don't have it yet and so i i we, we just started talking about his work with lapine and he told me i think how much he admired lapine and how much lapine had freed him up in ways that he had been looking for at that time in his life. And um, and then I remember um, saying something to, saying some encouraging words to him about, you know, your, you know, this, the, isn't this how you begin all your shows, you know, with a, musical motif that you build on and you know I mean we, we had a little conversation about it and it was the first time I'd had such a conversation with him and you know later I, I gotta say it became one of those pinch me moments where I thought mm-hmm. oh my god I'm, I'm here sitting with you know my idol giving him a pep talk about writing but really it wasn't about you know pinch me I'm here with sometime it was about understanding that Sondheim was as sensitive, needy, vulnerable, 
plus, of course, being talented and brilliant yeah. as every other great writer that I had known mm. up to that point. And there were a few. And it really humanized Steve for me for the first time. And I think that was the first time I heard him speak about Into the Woods. And, you know, from, from there on in, it was kind of writing all the way. And he really began to generate material. And then, you know, we headed towards a reading uh, at Playwrights. I believe there were two readings at Playwrights Horizons um, prior to the uh, Old Globe. Please talk to me about this because James Lapine, who I already spoke to for this podcast, by the way, just that moment with Sondheim, thank you so much for sharing it. And I'm hearing it in the context of an interview I read with you from a few years back where you talked about your job being to assess personalities and see what's needed in the individual relationships to, you know, to keep the show progressing creatively and I love this moment of you in the car, I don't, dramaturging Sondheim. It's beautiful. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm so confused. I mean, Lapine wasn't even sure talking to me. I mean, he said he was going to ask Chip. So I guess I can ask Chip too, although I don't think he was involved yet. But there was a reading at Playwrights Horizons. Then there was a workshop at Playwrights Horizons. Then you yeah. the Old Globe. Then yeah, there was yeah, another yeah. workshop. No, there were there well yes 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 in the in the larger scheme of things yes yeah. you got it right there was a the first reading is hazy in my mind I don't I don't believe that there was much music if any music involved I have a memory of the baker's wife being played by Christine Estabrook oh who was a, um, you know, not a singing actress. Yeah. Now I might be making that up, but you know, it's a, it's a good one if I'm making that up. because I love it. Where yeah. Came from. I don't remember anybody else in the cast, but it was very common in the Sondheim-Lapine collaborations and in general in the Sondheim collaborations that I've worked on for there to be a very, very preliminary reading that did not involve much music at all. The idea of which was to inspire the writing of music. Yeah. To let Steve and James, in this case, hear out loud, because the bottom line is, you know, you can read it on the page all you want, but, you know, theater is out loud. Yeah. You know, and to be active in full dimension. So, yes. Readings become important yeah. as a learning tool. So I believe there was a reading. And we think that, that was like a table read. Like it was no audience. Like it was just, you know, you all at around a table with a few actors to read what there was. Yeah, we didn't even sit around a table in those days. We just lined up some chairs and stands and put them in a semicircle and, yeah. you know, did something informal. Um. I don't, I wish I could remember. I'm pretty sure that the opening sequence, you know, that whole long yeah. set piece that opens into the woods was written very early on. And um, it I could not have been Christine Asterbrook if we were doing um, singing in that reading. And I wish, you know, somewhere, I, Daniel, you're going to, you know, kill me for this but somewhere in my 
storage facility that I could not, you know, get to in time or files that probably have answers to some of these questions. But yeah. at the moment, my memory is okay. not good enough. I mean, it's like, but I believe mindset. there wasn't an, there was an initial reading. There, there followed it some months later, I think in like maybe June 86. Yeah. There was a full on kind of stage reading ish presentation, you know, with a fairly full cast. Um, and I don't remember how long it was in between, but, but at that point there was music, uh, there probably was not act two uh, to speak of, but there was definitely an opening number. We had definitely started to think about casting uh, more seriously. Um, and that reading did become a little bit of a blueprint of what was to come. For the last time, I am not on Ozempic. I made one little joke on this podcast, and everybody started calling me out, texting me, calling me cringe, whatever. I really was asked by people if I was on Ozempic, and as I told them, I am not. I am just eating factors, no prep, no mess meals, okay? Warmer, sunnier days are coming. Fire Island season is here. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine what are you waiting for with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week you'll always have new flavors to explore crush your wellness goals this may with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust from breakfast to dessert stay fueled with easy nutritious options treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon shrimp and blackened salmon and kitchen time is kept to a minimum they are ready in two minutes no shopping no prepping no cooking no cleanup enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or just simply to eat well-balanced. Head to factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 and use code giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code giantsinthesky50 at factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The unfortunate thing, which, you know, unfortunately has no, it really has no bearing on anybody but me, but I had, I caught a bad case of strep throat. And on the day of the presentation of that reading, I was at my worst, most high feverish, couldn't <laughs> speak, couldn't do anything. It was so contagious with strep throat. And so I couldn't even attend that reading. I, oh, no. I watched every, I watched every rehearsal though. I watched, you know, I knew the whole thing backwards and forwards, but it was a rare time in my career where I actually missed the event. But anyway, it was it was a um, much more fully realized um, uh, material than the initial reading, which whose purpose was really to inspire yes. 
and you're saying this was likely more fully realized in the first act, but it but it was certainly a, a lot of material in the first act, at least. Yes, that's and, my, my recollection. Now, there's are you familiar with this website, Overture.com? It's like O-V-R-T-U-R. So there's a cast list for this reading there. Do you, can I ask you to verify any of it? Yeah, well, definitely Joanna Gleason. I and and we should talk about casting because I, that I was where that. I actually had the most. I think I had the most um, influence in those days. Um, yeah, there were a few people who ended up staying with the show the whole time. I mean, Danielle Furland, you know, yeah. the big Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, the baker was a wonderful, wonderful actor who very, very sadly was, you know, died of AIDS. And, you know, this was in the 80s when that yeah. was a sad, very, very sad fact. Of yeah. Life. Ray Gill. Yeah. Ray Gill had been in our production of Merrily mm. in La Jolla. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he kind of represented how Lapine saw the baker at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray Gill was a little bit, um, he was a round mm-hmm. man with a wonderful, warm and happy face mm-hmm. and a very, very warm and generous personality and presence. And uh, he did, he was in the sort of featured ensemble in, uh, in our Merrily in La Jolla. Mm-hmm. So he did the, he, he uh, did the Baker in that, um, uh, and in that presentation, as I recall, and then sadly died. Uh, yeah, there were other, I, I think other people were kind of drawn from Lapine's, um, you know, world. I mean, Ray Gill had been in Merrily, Mary D'Arcy was, um, Cinderella, she'd been in Sunday. Yeah. Bob Gunton was a big New York musical sure. actor, you know, at that point, you know, I think with Evita. Um, Evita, you know, on his resume. And that was considered a big gay. Bobby Leonard, who, you know, grew up to be Robert Sean Leonard. He grew up to be Robert Sean Leonard. <laughs> um, Robert Sean Leonard, yeah, Bobby Leonard was what we called him as a kid at that point. He's a kid actor. Uh, Joy Franz, Joy Franz had been in Merrily also. Uh, right, and so here she is just from the beginning as the only stepmother for for the ages. Exactly. She she went on, she continued. Barbara Brin. Only Jack's uh, mother for the ages. Jack's mother, so yeah. she s- stuck with it. Uh yeah, the princes were, you know, I, they were yeah, Howard Howard McGillan, I think, was a prince. Yeah, Victor Quinn. Yeah, very very funny. Yeah, wonderful, over the top. Patrick Quinn was one of the princes. Um, uh, I know that that website says Betty Buckley was the witch. Yeah. Which you'd think I would remember that very clearly, wouldn't yeah. you? But I don't remember that very well. You do well. remember she was the witch later on. Yes, of course. And I knew Betty at that point, and I, yeah. you know, um, she was a presence in my world. Um, and I only, I'm, I'm only saying Betty Buckley because she's in that, you know, she's on that list, which is, it seems to me pretty accurate. 
Yeah. I don't actually remember to be but honest. But I think she has actually, I'm going to try to talk to her actually, but I think that she has referenced having done two separate workshops of it. Um, yes, she did the post uh, Old Globe workshop. So there that would suggest workshop. she also did this one. Um, Correct. And I, I'm just, I guess I'm curious why she didn't go to the Old Globe in between. Well, Lapine, we did a lot of auditioning, you know, of the roles that we weren't. We had done some auditioning for that workshop, including Joanna Gleason. Um, Joanna Gleason, I'm going to claim, we had a wonderful, really incredible casting director, the first casting director at Playwrights Horizons, whose name was John Lyons, who went on to be a a wonderful film producer. Yeah. but John and I used to work closely together on casting the musical projects. Um, and so there were a few auditions, I think, for that workshop. Um, yeah. I do remember Joanna Gleason auditioning. Um, and I remember, requesting, I remember requesting Joanna Gleason because yes. she was not a known... She had made her debut in a show that I loved. You know, it's it's somewhat dated, you know, now, I, I suppose. Uh, I Love My Wife. Yeah. A Broadway, a really kind of swell, jazzy Broadway musical by Cy Coleman about, you know, uh, open marriages, you know. It, yeah. It, it doesn't quite, you know, had a great <laughs> score. Yeah, totally. Still enjoyed today, but it, it's it's not, you know, I would say it's not a relevant subject no. matter to us today. Not but enough. Joanna Gleason was a standout. Yeah. I, I remembered looking at her and there was such a, she had a way with a quip. She had an understanding of human. She could take the funniest comedy line and find the humanity. Mm-hmm. From, and that was clear from a straight on, you know, musical, contemporary musical comedy like I Love My Boy. And Joanna Gleason stuck in my head and she she would often audition for us. And, you know, sometimes I will remember, you know, people have audition songs that they do regularly. And, you know, when on the second, third audition, you know, you kind of know what somebody's going to come in and sing, you know. And her go-to, I think, was What Do I Have I Don't Have Now from On a Clear Day. Oh, yeah. Which she sang brilliantly. Mm. And had just this quality that I'm talking about it was a song that was wry but but full of just humanity Mm. you know I used to be what did I have in my old reincarnated life that I don't have now that the guy won't fall in love with me and it's a witty song imagine her being so so witty like she was making up all those words as she went along witty but humane yeah mm. she found the the her comedy came from character mm-hmm. even if it was just at an audition mm-hmm. and i think that that was very impressive for the baker's wife yeah so anyway joanna ended up getting cast you know for the baker's wife um we had um uh just looking to see if there are any other people in that company from that reading that were, and Nancy Opal, you know, a lot of the um, kind of Sondheim stalwarts of the moment, you know, Nancy Opal, 
Temple, Joy Front, you know, a lot of the Danielle, Orland, you know, a lot of these people were people that, you know, Lapine had um, uh, developed relationships with. Um, uh, but when, after that reading, um, the show was picked up by, um, uh, well, at the time they were kind of New York's power producing couple and, you know, they're kind of no longer together, but Heidi and uh, Rocco Landisman, yeah. now Heidi Ettinger, yeah. uh, who's a, who was a brilliant, brilliant set designer and brilliant mm-hmm. producer and her husband Rocco was the head of Jujamson, and they they picked up the rights to to um, into the woods, um, and the Old Globe offered a production, and we started to audition for roles that we, you know, we you know we went over the list of people that we wanted to. Um, stick with from that workshop and then audition to everybody else. Yeah. John Lyons, I recall there was some reason that he was not available to cast that um, into the woods at the Globe. So I did a lot of the casting beginning with lists that John Lyons had made and then branching out from those lists, you know, and I set up all the appointments and brought in ideas of my own and all of that and, you know, set up the auditions, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and there were some fun audition stories. Do you want to hear, you want to hear any Please, of these? All of them, as many as you feel like sharing. Uh, Kim Crosby, I remember. Um, Kim did a couple of auditions. I'd seen Kim, I brought Kim up and added her to the list of Cinderella's. Incidentally, I, I, when you first asked me to do this, I went to my casting files, which I unfortunately are not as complete as I had wished they were. I don't know that I, even with Sondheim and Lapine, you know, I was living in the moment. I had no idea the historical record that this would all become. Anyway, um, on the list for Cinderella were names as diverse as Patty Lupone, believe it or not. Yes. As a Cinderella. Yes. I added Kim Crosby to the list um, and then brought her in for an audition after having seen her at the O'Neill Conference in Connecticut mm-hmm. in a reading of a musical based on uh, Fahrenheit 451. Oh, wow. There was a musical based on that book. It was actually quite good, surprisingly good, although it didn't really go anywhere uh, after that. But Kim was really wonderful in that and had a kind of a, um, well, she had a youth and an innocence, really, that was very right for Cinderella. And she had a terrific voice. Yeah. Uh, so she, I remember she did a series of auditions uh, and ended up getting the part against a slew of more well-known, you know, um, uh, singing uh, singing ladies at the time. Um, did she? I mean, and- the, the, I mean, I've heard the Patti Lapone story 
Uh, and, you know, Lapine was laughing about that too, but saying that that was not a serious consideration. She was sort of typed out of the role. But were there people that were serious contenders who were sort of more established than Kim Crosby? Probably, but I can't tell you off the top of my head who they were. Right. I could probably go back to my list somewhere and extrapolate them, you know. Um, but you have to imagine everybody who was a soprano, and there were more legit sopranos in those days because there was more calling for, there was less power building, you know, yeah. there was less kind of a high pop uh, belt, power building that one hears today. Yeah. So there were still jobs mm. for legit sopranos. And so there were more uh, young women in, in those days with legit voices. So Kim really, she did beat out quite a few more. I mean, like were Christine Andreas or Christine Ebersole in the mix? Probably, probably were. And probably almost anyone you could name who was the right age at the right time was on that yeah. list. Gotcha. Um, and then, you know, they, we, they start, you know, the, the casting process is such, not everyone's available, not everyone's interested, you know, whatever, yeah, sure. you know, they, they, uh, Sondheim collaborations, you know, they always got a little extra attention from everybody and the agents and the actors, everybody wanted to be in them. Yeah. So it was a lot easier to attract people, you know, in those days, yeah. uh, um, for these kinds of shows, mm-hmm. but, um, I they were, the the lists were pretty good. My recollection of the list for all the characters is they were pretty good lists of pretty well known people. But Kim stood out. She stood out, I think, for her innocence. And Lapine loved working with, you know, directors often like to both work with people they know very well because, you know, there's an ease of communication with people yeah. who they know. And also they like to work with new people because there's an excitement, you know? Yeah. Um, Just going back to the witch for a minute, I remember back in those days, Lapine always would ask for, he would ask all the casting people, well, you know, who's, because there was a schism, which we mentioned earlier between, you know, rock music and theater music. And the same goes for performers. You know, there were kind of, People didn't cross over quite as easily as they do today. Yeah. And there was not an interest in crossing over the way there is today. Mm. But Lapine would always ask for like, isn't there anybody, you know, in the rock world, in the pop world, you know, Pat Benatar used to be on every list we made, even though there were no theater chops to speak of. And um, Ellen Foley, who ended up playing the witch in the old globe, came under the heading of she straddled right. the kind of pop rock, you know, universe of singers. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet she also had theater experience and acting chops. Yeah. So when it came to, you know, I think the witch was not as defined as she later came to be. And I, I think the true definition or development of the character of the witch truly began and was refined when Bernadette was cast later. So let me ask you a question about that, because 
there's sort of the legend of Bernadette. I don't know. There's different versions I've heard. Oh, she was at lunch with Sondheim. They were about to start rehearsals and he was saying we're desperate for somebody. And she said, well, I'm available. Or James Lapine called her, all these stories. But it was last minute. But how is it that coming on the heels of Sunday in the Park with George, her name had not once come up in the two years of workshops until Broadway preview or Broadway rehearsals were about to start? I think it's more about the character than the actress. Yeah. Um, I mean, I Bernadette there was a little, there was a little, you know, we, we, Bernadette, you know, in those days was still very ingenue-ish. Right. Was she considered and, for Cinderella? No. I don't remember being considered for anything in particular in Into the Woods. There didn't really seem to be anything for her. I mean, she was probably a little too, um, uh, she was probably a little older than what Lapine had in mind because it was a, about a girl. Cinderella yeah. was a girl, right. and I used the girl in the literal sense. Yeah, she was right. a girl who was trying to figure out how to um, make choices in life, how to choose this situation from that how to choose yes. what was good for her no of this, course these are the coming of age you know and bernadette was already you know a very very established star yeah obviously from sunday in the park with george she was even more she was famous and well 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 established going into sunday so i don't think it was because there was no consideration given to her. I think she simply wasn't considered quite right for any of the roles that we were looking for. She might have been considered for the baker's wife, but Joanna Gleason had a lock on that role, really, from the word right. go. Um, and I can't really give you the story of how Bernadette came to be, because I didn't work on Into the Woods when it went to Broadway. I went back to Playwrights Horizons. Right. So can't give you the skinny. But I got a, I, I can give you a great story. Well, you know, I'll tell you about, um, I got two, two that were, uh, two stories that are really worth, worth hearing. One was uh, just a quick one about the casting of um, uh, Ben Wright as Jack. Um, uh, I had done a show in between uh, Sunday and Right after Merrily, I produced, reproduced at Playwrights Horizons the debut, the theater, musical theater debut show of George C. Wolfe. It was called Paradise! Exclamation point. And it was a um, kind of a um, allegory of, um, well, it was an allegory about many things. And it, it was just, so chock full of ideas and wit and it was the first time kind of hearing George Wolfe's you know voice as a writer and as a playwright and and, uh, uh, ultimately of course he became a wonderful director he did not direct that show anyway Ben Wright and Danielle Furland played brother and sister in George C. Wolfe's musical Paradise before so Ben Wright was on my radar and when it came time for Jack, we saw a lot of kids for Jack, a lot of young guys, um, including, I remember a notable audition, uh, Christian Slater. Wow. 
who was, you know, he was a, he was his, if you want to call it a claim to fame, I mean, he was the son of, um, of, of quite important uh, casting director, Mary Jo Slater mm. in those days. And, um, and had done Oliver on Broadway, I believe. Maybe, I, you know, I, he had scant few credits. Yeah. And even fewer musicals, but he was a name that was on our radar. And I remember going to his house and dropping off the material, Manhattan Plaza. And then we had a series of auditions for uh, for Jack. And Christian Slater came in and was kind of late and came in and was very disheveled. And it was quite concerning, actually. And not, he was very. Um, he had lost his concentration during the audition and was a little off the wall. And Lapine was, you know, who was very attuned to people's feelings and that sort of thing, and and really would hone in on what was going on at an audition. Said, "What's what's the matter?" And Chris, I remember Christian Slater saying, "You know, I was mugged on my way over to the audition," and you know, we so we got you know quite concerned are you okay are you this are you that and and then it turned out he gave an audition and couldn't really you know he really wasn't a singer and he was not you know completely prepared I I don't think it was a role that captured his interests Mm -hmm. even as a kid so Mm -hmm. you know he it, it was not a um an audition that was very thorough and I think quite honestly I'm not not to cast aspersions on Christian Slater, who I adore as an adult actor, but I think that he was saving face, you know, at the time. And right, where all know, the people. All that, he saw. But anyway, Ben Wright came in and nailed the role. He nailed the part. He was the, he had the most angelic voice. He could hit the notes, you know, because Giants in the Sky had a big money note, and he could hit the notes. He had an angelic face and beautiful red hair and uh was maybe 14 or 15 years old and he nailed the audition and and got that role anyway that there there were other auditions i don't i don't remember them as well but we did we we really were just searching high and low for the baker Mm. at that point ray gale had passed away oh that early I believe so. He was not in consideration for the Baker, and I believe he would have been if he had been around. Um, don't forget, people got sick. You know, AIDS was yeah. a, was a major, major killer in those days, and and it happened to people quickly. Yeah, and there was no treatment, and it it people just just you know people people's health disintegrated very quickly. Right. Anyway. Just one more question, sorry, on um, the Jacks and Little Reds. Were they all sort of adolescents, like Ben Wright and Danielle Ferlin? No, like, little children were thought of for it? Well, you know, the songs were wordy. The songs had to be sung by somebody who understood them. Yeah. And the age of the characters were the age, I think, of Danielle and Ben I don't think it was far off from their actual ages, you know, the ages that the characters were portraying. 
Danielle was probably a little older, but she was, you know, a small yeah. child, like, you know, she was not a, an adult in child's clothing, you know, she was not at all an obnoxious no, 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 child no. actor who was just a yeah. wisecracking kid, you know, she was a no. really lovely, funny, witty, adorable yeah kid after you know that we were in love with um because oh. christian slater was a bona fide kid you know he's 14 years old yeah. ben wright was 14 15 years old you know no no i just mean like for example in the film of into the woods it's a little boy oh, real kid yeah this and i was curious if that was ever considered in their original no not that young yeah and um so, okay, and you said you had another great uh, jacket. Well, I wanted to tell you the story of how Chip Zion got cast. Oh, yes. That's yes. a lovely story and a fun story, particularly looking back on it. We really were stuck. We were stuck for the baker. Uh, James, I think, had Ray Gill in his head as a prototype who was a little in the, you know, the kind of the round, jovial baker kind of Mm -hmm. trope, you know. Um, But we didn't limit ourselves to that. We we saw everyone. We saw everyone in the world. And we were just not coming up with the baker. Chip's name had always been on the lists because he was beloved by, at that point, he was beloved by Lapine and me and John Lyons, our casting director, and and even sometime because he had been, uh, you know, in Merrily in yeah. La Jolla. So um, it was, I think it was a Friday. We had finished callbacks for the baker. We just didn't really have the baker. And I brought up Chip to Lapine. And I, and I said, what, a, you know, what about Chip? He, he's in L.A. He's doing a TV show. But he's available and he's interested. Can we consider him? And Lapine said, let's see if we can get him to come in on Monday. Yeah. And I called Chip in LA and Chip was filming a TV series. I think that series he did with Tony Randall. Anyway, mm. um, Love he Sydney. was filming, Love Sydney. <laughs> he was filming every day, all day. And um, he said, you know, maybe I could take the red eye on Monday, an audition Monday morning, and turn around and go right back to LA, finish filming. And by then I knew Chip, as I said, quite well. And I thought, I don't, that does not sound good. That sounds like he's going to take the red eye. He's going to be exhausted. He was not I hope Chip doesn't mind my saying so. He was not the most comfortable auditioner. Mm. Auditioning is a, you know, a thing unto mm-hmm. itself. Some mm-hmm. people are very, very at ease. Some people are not. Some people are in between. And it varies, you know, from audition to audition. Um, but I knew Chip was not the most at ease auditioner. And I thought, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, great. He'll take the red eye. He'll be cranky. He'll audition, you know, Lapine knows him too well. It'll 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 just backfire. Mm-hmm. And I said to Chip, Chip, I can't believe that I had the chutzpah to say this, because I would never do this today. I said, Chip, say you're not available to audition. 
and let me see what I can do about the role. And I would never say that today because why would you even make a veiled, even hint at a promise that you could yeah. not keep? You know, it just, I just can't even imagine the chutzpah of it. But I did that. And um, Chip said, okay, Ira. He went along with it. And I went back to James and Steve and I said, after our callbacks on that Monday, we were still not happy with the Baker possibilities. And I said, you know, Chip is filming in LA or he would have come. He was unable to come. Let's please consider him. And the Pine, you know, thought about it for a little bit because he was a little outside of what he'd been thinking about, but he went with it mm-hmm. and made the offer. And then, of course, Chip was sidelined for the first week of auditions because he was still filming the TV shows. So the first week of rehearsal? First week, of, pardon me, of a rehearsal for the Globe uh, production. Oh, wow. So it was a little, got a little tricky, but but nevertheless. Were those um, rehearsals in New York? We rehearsed, yeah, we rehearsed into the woods in New York. We rehearsed at West Beth, down in the oh. village. West Beth was a, it's still there. It's a, yeah. it's a subsidized uh, housing unit for our artists, mostly visual artists. But they also had a performance space, yeah. a gigantic loft, a rehearsal complex. And it was very private. And that appealed to James to rehearse. And we rehearsed a lot of stuff down there in those days. Oh. So, yeah, for all different kinds of things. I mean, you either rehearsed at 890 Broadway, which was at that point Michael Bennett was still yeah. alive, and it was Michael Bennett Studios. Um, or you rehearsed at West Beth. I mean, those are the big, you know, studios. The Minskoff, there were the Minskoff studios. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, these things change and it's all different now. But anyway. Um, as I said, you know, I, I took a chance with Chip knowing that Steve and James had, a, had an affinity for him. And that knowing that he was right for the role, because Chip had the empathy, he had what Joanna had. Mm-hmm. He had the humor, he had the the heart, and he had the killer singing voice. Yeah. yeah. And he could carry a show which he had shown that he had done before. Yeah. So anyway, that was the story of uh, Chip got the part. And I I uh as I said, I would never have the nerve to do that today because I would never put an actor's, you know, role in jeopardy. Yeah. By suggesting that they don't. Gut. I mean, maybe had he auditioned, he wouldn't have gotten it, you know. And uh, I think the world might have you to thank for Chip Zion and Joanna Gleason and Into the Woods. I think that the world, well, the world doesn't have to thank me, but I'm very grateful that things came to be because... They were definitive in really? their time. Yeah. I mean, and they were certainly the parts of a lifetime, I think, yeah. for both of them. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, too, because of that American Playhouse broadcast of the Broadway production and the home video release that is so iconic. I mean, it's really the gateway 
to Sondheim, even the gateway to theater for just, you know, generations. Um, and so unlike the traditional musical theater thing where you know the cast album by heart, we all know Joanna Gleason's line readings, you know, of the book. And uh, it's, I mean, it's almost a liability, particularly in her case, because she is such a way you know, it, it's like, it's like you said, I mean, it's this one-two punch that she can um, hit a joke in such a specific, um, uh, hilarious way that almost nothing else, you know, compares to what she does comedically, but it's so grounded in humanity. I mean, it's, it, she sort of like obliterates any other option for anybody to do in the role and and everyone has the disadvantage of audiences who already know her entire performance yes it's true it's true and that's a lovely way to describe them they were both definitive for me you know and uh I would never say the world has made a thank for anything but I'm very grateful that I was able to that my my role in that original production focus I mean I you know I I really had my fingers everywhere but I think the greatest influence I had over that production was in the casting yeah it was I have to say very gratifying for me as time went on and also as the show took on legendary status and characters became iconic as actors who as the actors who played them and all of that I think was very gratifying for me as time went on I I can only imagine. I mean, it, it is such a landmark show at this point. And um, oh, I have another thing I want to ask you about. So back into the sort of minutia a little bit, which is that there are these demo tracks with Maureen Moore and John Cameron Mitchell and George Lee Andrews, Betsy Joslin of um, the Boom Crunch and Second. Oh, Midnight. the bonus. The Pardon bonus me? tracks on. Well, on, there on there's like... three tracks that are the bonus tracks on the. Um, reissue at one point of the Broadway yeah. cast recording but then there's more sort of from the same set uh that were released on this um Sondheim the story so far box set and right. a couple others that fans have traded that you know were with the same sort of little company um and I'm curious I mean James Lapine had no idea those even existed when I brought it up with him like I believe they were recorded at the time the album was done oh. with but I could be wrong. I could be very wrong. And because I had less involvement as Broadway, as it, as it, you know, my, my involvement was all in the development. So as it went past, you know, when it, when it came back to New York and went into workshop for Broadway and then went to Broadway, I mean, I was back at playwrights, you know, doing my thing. Yeah. My guess is that there probably are clues on the actual albums. It probably says something about where and when they were recorded, although I don't, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But, you know, they were cut songs. I mean, there were, there was a lot of writing and rewriting at the old Globe. Tremendous amount of writing. You're saying these were after the fact, like made archivally rather than. Yes. They were not. They were not contemporaneous with the old Globe production. Fascinating. That is so interesting. I mean, it's odd, you know, uh, when Patti Lapone did Gypsy on Broadway, the out the company Time Life I can't remember the name of the I want to say Time Life Records. That sounds wrong. But that released the cast recording, did all the 
cut songs, you know, the trunk songs from Gypsy um, with Patty and Laura and Auntie and everybody singing them. It's odd to me that they would have done that for the Broadway recording and brought in these other people to sing. Yeah, they, at the same time, you got to remember this cast who's the cast, the Broadway cast recording a show album. Those were the days of, you know, of you recorded on your one day off. Right, right. You, you went from yeah. morning to midnight. You know, the yeah. breaks were few and far between. You know, legally, they were, they were breaks, of yes. course, but they were few and far between. It was so exhausting. it's like the company documentary, but I'm still poking holes in your theory because it also, if they were done for the Broadway recording, they weren't released Too on the, later. the LP in 1988. They were bonus tracks in 2006 or something, you know. But that's when I'm guessing they were recorded. They may have been recorded. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I don't know, think. Ben, I'm making all this. I'm making this up. <laughs> I, I could go back to the stuff I actually know or recapitulate. I need to revisit your when you find your archives. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, can I tell you? Can I tell you something? Boom yeah. Crunch. Paul Geminiani and I, we love that song, Boom Crunch. Yeah. I mean, it never worked in the theater. It, it had yeah. to be cut. It went through a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. And that was in part and parcel of the de- development of the character of the witch, mm-hmm. which I don't think really came to fruition in the old globe. Yeah. Um, but Boom Crunch never worked for the audience. The audience couldn't really follow it. Yeah. It, it, it was, you know, it was a terrific song, and I remember Paul Gemignani and I used to love to hear it. And yeah, and um, but but ultimately it didn't work, and it, it, it you know it had to go. And 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 there were a lot of things about the witch that had to be developed and did get developed, of course. Uh, there was a song that? called um, "I'm Sorry." Can you tell me about the things about the witch that had to go? I mean. You mentioned earlier that Lapine had been interested in a rock and roll quality and that that was part of the appeal of Ellen Foley was that she straddled both worlds. I mean, was there the was witch... nothing particularly rock and roll about her other than the rap song, which, of course, was not rock and roll. Yeah. Because um, Boom Crunch I, doesn't sound any more rock and roll than Last Midnight. No. No, I don't think it was directly related to the nature of the role. I think it yeah. was related to who is new and fresh ideas for casting. Oh, okay, okay. Who's in the crossover world that we may not have thought of. Right. Because we're focused only on theater people. That makes sense. So I think that was more of the fascination. Um, I I think the witch in, um, the witch at the Old Globe had a, I mean, she did her, you know, the the basic plot points were there, but the full story and the whole backstory and all of the subtext, I mean, that was really developed, you know, much later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of 
you know, the, uh, remember the old globe, it was not a workshop. It was a full out production. Right. It was a full out world premiere. It was as full as it could be, as the writing could make it at the time, even though there were holes in the writing and there were things that got cut as a result. There were a lot of, um, there were different approaches to casting. I mean, the narrator was a separate character from right. the mysterious man. The mysterious man was played by George Coe, mm-hmm. uh, who had been in the original co- co- uh, company of company. Yeah. And um, he played the old man. And uh, John Cunningham played the narrator. Mm-hmm. And the narrator was a kind of tuxedoed. I'm not really in the show. I'm the narrator, you know, outside. And there was a lot of made of the kind of meta of the narrator. Mm. Like there was a whole sequence where at one point in the middle of act two, the characters turned on the narrator. Yeah. And started to indict the narrator for not being in the story. And who are you anyway? You're outside the story, but you're controlling us. And, you know, what are you doing? And it led to a whole kind of metaphysical exploration and there was a song called interesting things or interesting i forgot the name of it interesting questions interesting questions yeah and it it became a meta ominous meta moment of you know who's responsible for the evil in the world you know which was the the foreshadowing of act two you know and all of that Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and all of that I think got refined as the story became more cohesive you know I think the Pine and Sondheim spent a good deal of time making the story the glue of the story hold together including the witch's subtext and the witch's background and mm-hmm. I think she was viewed in the old globe as more symbolic of someone who was honest about her dishonesty. That mm-hmm. was a theme for Lapine, that everybody has to be a little dishonest to get through life. You know, the telling of the small lie to, to excuse oneself, to pass the blame to whatever. Yeah. And that the witch was the one who was honest about her dishonesty mm-hmm. or her evil intent yeah. or whatever. And that was really the theme of the witch at the old globe. But it came, became much more than that. It became about motherhood and the loss of motherhood and the loss of beauty and the loss of, uh, you know, the, the growing older. I mean, many, many things, you know, came to inform that role that were not in yeah. play at the old globe. So anyway, a lot of, there were a lot of changes all throughout the old globe. Um, every week was, you know, every Monday, the day off, was filled with me and James' assistant cutting and pasting changes. Don't forget, everything was on paper in those days. Everything. There was no, com- there were no, com- well, there were computers, but, you know, there weren't computers that we used, like no. you know, we're using now or, that yeah. I'm speaking to you now on a computer. <laughs> there, you know, everything was paper. The yeah. paper had to be Xerox. Steve Sondheim had to write the song. Well, he always wrote the song in longhand, but 
when it went to the copyist, you know, there was the queen of the copyists, music copyist, the person who transcribed every note mm. handwritten by Steve Sondheim was Maddie Pincus of Chelsea Music. Chelsea. She was an amazing character. She was an unsung hero of the musical theater. Mm. Always was. She hand wrote every note of every score in her beautiful, gorgeous music calligraphy. So anytime there was a new song, that thing had to be handwritten and brought in. And, you know, it was a, it was a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. It wasn't press a button, hit send, and, you know, you get yeah. your music and you put it in. Yeah. Everything was, you know... Um, so Mondays, you know, at the Old Globe were like the papers were flying, the Xerox was overheating. I mean, everything was, you know, was a mad dash to make the Tuesday rehearsal. And then the rehearsals that followed, which were nothing but changes and rewrites and mm-hmm. revisions. Steve would make the most, both Steve and James, but I remember. Steve would make the most specific as he was learning more about the characters and James was refining the characters. Steve would make the tiniest but most incisive revisions. Mm. He would change the word in um, the opening for Cinderella. Uh, uh, It was, I want to go to the festival. And then the, the stepmother would echo you want to go to the festival? Well, one day Steve came in and changed I want to I wish to go to the festival. And of course, I wish became the metaphor yeah. for the whole yeah. play. But there was a little tiny picky change that mm-hmm. really and Lapine was the same way. He would he would make the smallest changes. Lapine is a great editor always was, always will be. Mm. One of the few people who could write and go home and criticize his own work. Oh, that doesn't work. I'm cutting it. Mm. You know, he was not precious about mm. it. Sometimes he would be un- unsure, but mm. he wasn't precious. If it yeah. needed to go, it went. If it needed to be written, he would rewrite. Um, Steve also write to the I wants, to the I wishes. Everything was deliberate and extremely beautifully thought out. Um, There were a couple of songs. I mean, I don't know if this would be interesting to you. Um, There were two songs in particular that when they were written and when they came in, I I was particularly moved by. And I, I think that... It might be moving for just a general, you know, audience. I mean, I remember we were doing, uh, James asked me to assemble a group of NYU students. And he did a lot of pre-production with NYU kids where we would um, have Paul Ford, our pianist, would play various songs and Lapine would just experiment with the staging. He would... He would do he would do it on paper on a grid on that kind of um 
you know, grid paper, yeah. you know, that's in yeah. squares. And he would chart chart things out. You know, he was graphic. Don't forget he was coming from graphic design. Yeah. So everything was visual with him. Not everything, but visual was where he um, was his first response. And so, you know, he would he would work on things and then he would kind of experiment with the NYU kids. Anyway, one day at one of our last NYU kids sessions, which we did two or three of once before rehearsal and a couple while we were still in rehearsal. And at the last one, Paul Ford, um, who had received the handwritten copy of the song, No More, Mm. um, you know, for the... uh, uh, Baker and the Baker's father. Yeah, the the mysterious old man and um, um, and Paul played us for he played it for us and the NYU kids who were of course you know we were all so moved by that song and um, I had never heard it in rehearsal. You know they were they did it they. Uh, no, I, I had heard it in Drips and Drabs while, while Chip was learning it, but I, I had not heard it performed, you know, really performed. Um, even when Sondheim came in to, he would come in periodically to coach the actors individually. So generous with actors, always, always generous with actors at every moment. His coaching was that of the... The vulnerable writer I told you about in the car. That was Steve with actors. He mm-hmm. would say, if the key isn't good, I'll change it. Mm-hmm. Let's let's make this right for you. Are there any words or is there any, you know, he was strong and, and obviously opinionated and brilliant and who would question any word he wrote, but yet he himself was very self-effacing when it came to sharing it with the actors and he only wanted the actor to feel comfortable and be able to act the song and um his coaching was always very illuminating both to the actors and anyone who would listen to them anyway flash forward to we're we're at our first run through at act two and chip and george asked to go over their song no more at the piano before the um run through and it was the first time I heard it and, you know, really done as in performed as opposed to being learned. And when Chip got to the section of the song, No More Giants Waging War, can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives? Makes me cry to this day to even say those words. But when Chip sang it for the first time at the piano, I'm telling you, there was not a dry eye in that room. It was, and of course, that was Chip. That was Chip. He had had a soaring voice. He could sing loud. He could sing soft. He could sing with great heart. He could sing with great brass. And that song really required the most heart you could possibly imagine. Mm. And even in rehearsal, even at a run-through of the song before a run-through of the act, there was Chip just moving you to tears with that song, Um, which it did, I have to say, to this day, that is my favorite set of lines from, Mm. uh, from a song in that. 
in that show. Yeah. Anyway, the other song that I wanted to tell you about was um, there was always a um, notation, a stage direction in the script before the uh, Baker, Cinderella, uh, Little Red, and Jack kill the giant. Uh, there was always a notation, a stage direction that they would sing a quartet. We didn't really know what the quartet was about. Mm. We knew that it was important because it was the climax of the show. It needed to sum up what we had seen. It needed to take us, it needed to be the doorway to the end of the show because everything was going to get wrapped up. And it became a little bit of a running gag between me and the pine because, you know, it was that song. In, in every Sondheim score, there is a song that gets written very, very late that is the pivotal song. I mean, you can name every show, every song. And um, there was always this stage direction, and we knew it was that song. And I would just joke, we, we would, you know, occasionally joke, James and I, oh, he's writing the song. Oh, gosh, are we ever going to see the song? Anyway, we, we were very lucky. Jack O'Brien was the artistic director of the Old Globe. He could not have been a more generous, as you can imagine, and a brilliant artistic director there. And he was also very generous with us. We open, you know, you open after a few performances in regional theater. You don't get four weeks of previews like you do in New York. We open, you know, the, the, a week after we started previewing. We opened on a Thursday. But Jack gave us another week of rehearsals after we opened. Mm. So we kind of had a full opening. I don't even remember much about it. I, I You know, a party at the Marriott Hotel or something. Mm -hmm. San Diego, whatever wasn't a big deal because we all were in this frame of mind of we're working out of town on this show, you know, and, you know, we, we, we've got to finish. And there was a flurry uh, from Thursday to Sunday. Lapine and Sondheim were furiously writing and rewriting so that we could use, make the best use of that week that Jack had given us. And Saturday, that Saturday after the Thursday opening, Lapine came to me in all seriousness and he said, Steve is writing the song. He's writing the song for real. So we were a quiver. And um, by that week, uh, the week post opening, we had, I think, three or four rehearsals. I was scheduled to leave uh, on that Wednesday. We opened the previous Thursday, and I was scheduled to leave town on that Wednesday, and Lapine and Sondheim were scheduled to leave town on Friday morning. And on Wednesday, during the um, matinee, I got a call from James saying, Steve has written a song. Mm and get the actors together tonight. After the four actors together, the Baker, Cinderella, Jack, and Little Red, get them in the rehearsal room. Steve will come in and play them the song. And that night after the show, 
And after, you know, can, you can imagine a lot of work, you know, the hard, 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 hard work of giving birth to a new musical. Um, and we're exhausted. And here comes this new song. And I remember standing in the doorway of the rehearsal room next to Joanna Gleason, whose character was was killed off, unfortunately, before the spot for that song. And um, Steve sat down at the piano and took out his handwritten sheet of music and sang for the first time for those actors, No One Is Alone. And if I thought I was an emotional wreck after hearing No More, <laughs> I can't even describe to you the depth of emotion hearing No One Is Alone. Because of course it was exactly the song we were waiting for. Exactly the song for the moment in the script that was calling for it. The same way that, you know, um, all the other 11 o'clock songs that got written at, you know, midnight and all the other Stephen Sondheim shows, you know, were. And um, and I remember, you know, feeling a little empathy for Joanna because, you know, they were the four people who were going to get to sing the song. Mm. And Joanna knew at that moment and I was, you know, standing right next to her. So, of course, I was feeling her you know, um, vibes and I could feel her disappointment while I was watching everyone else who had, who worked, did have to learn the song and sing it, be so utterly moved. But Joanna, who is very um, instrumental, much more instrumental in developing the role of the Baker's wife than any other actor was in developing their own roles. She was very insightful. She and Steve, she would talk to Steve and James all the time about the baker's wife. And of course, it was the hardest role. The baker kind of had a trajectory. The baker's wife was not quite as clear her trajectory. And Joanna put so much of herself into it. And it was very difficult. And as I said, she was outspoken. And um, in the end, sometime I have to say, I think he listened to a great deal of what Joanna said, a great deal of what Joanna had to offer ended up in the role. Mm. I think that line, uh, and sometime I think writes about this and in his big old lyric book, you know, yeah. she, she at one point said, I think, I feel like my character's in the wrong story. Yeah. Because she, of course, was in the wrong story. Yeah. The baker and the baker's wife were contemporary yeah. fairy tale characters. Yeah. I mean, they were not in the story of, yeah. you know, Aesop's Fables or Jack and the Beanstalk and all that, you know. So anyway, after the writing of No More, you know, and further on into the Broadway production, which I had less involvement in, as I, as I said, I think Joanna really... And so she ended up with a little bit, you know, at, towards the end after yeah. No One Is Alone. And when the whole thing is being kind of summed up, she kind yeah. of comes back to the dead to pass on her her thing to her husband and her 
you know, the other characters. So I, 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 um, I have to say the, the, <laughs> I'll admit what I have never said before to anyone, actually. The, the, when, when Steve sat down at the piano in that rehearsal room and wrote and sang No One Is Alone, I was standing there with my cassette recorder, which was in, you know, how we learned everything in those days yeah. and everything was archived and all of that. And I flipped that thing to on and recorded that moment. Oh, wow. And somewhere in my... We need the tape. Probably disintegrating as we speak. We've got to digitize that. That's history. I know. There's a lot of history in my life and a lot of history on cassettes in my drawers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Well, Those thank are you two, for two that. songs. Two songs that meant a lot to me. Anything yeah. else on your mind about? I mean, I'm curious in terms of the dramaturgy um, or the or the the script development. I mean, though those two songs are arguably eleven o'clock numbers in a sense, or you know, they they both come at that part in the show. No more, and no one is alone. Maybe last midnight's the eleven o'clock number, but leaving that show business term aside, uh, those songs are in that moment, and then we get children will listen. Now that was not in the show at the Old Globe, right? No, it was not. And all of the development of um, again, that was part of the witch is the development of the character of the witch. You know the 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 mother. The mother who had a mother who was who mistreated her. Mm-hmm. The mother who cursed her with ugliness because she allowed the you know the witch allowed the mother's beans to yeah. be stolen. All of that stuff came after. Yeah. Um, so really, the dramaturgy was much more rudimentary at the Old Globe, and was much more kind of first drafty, as we say. So a lot of what you're asking, you know, and yeah, we didn't use, by the way, these terms, 11 o'clock numbers. Yeah. I mean, we didn't no, it doesn't apply to a song. Those are for, I shouldn't have said that, but. No, like, that's okay. I used it too. I wish it's, it's just that we didn't use terms like it that. It doesn't fit. But like, so was there no, did she not even have stay with me at the Old Globe? No. No. Uh... There was very little for Rapunzel was an afterthought, you know. Uh-huh. Rapunzel was more of a sight gag than than a yeah. plaintive character. You know, Rapunzel and Snow White were sight gags, you know. They, 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 there was not really, you know, the depth of character. That happened later. That happened after the Old Globe. Um, the kind of stuff that you're the depth that you're talking about happened after. Are there any things you would still want to see changed if you were back? You know, if, if you had a time machine to 1986 and they said, you know what, before we start, uh, you know, uh, the workshop before Broadway, we're going to do another two month workshop with just rewrites every day. Would you have anything on your list that's always not at you? Yeah, but. I don't know that it's important because um, 
Because number one, the list that I had back then is not the list that I would have now. No. It wasn't even the list that I had after the old the old globe, you know? Yeah. Um I always felt that the end of Act One was a little protracted and that James had a he loved to he had a kind of a, a slightly dark grotesque side that loved <laughs> to see. Yeah. I think he relished the idea of doing the scene where Cinderella's stepsisters would get their comeuppance by cutting yeah. off their toes. And, yeah blood spewing from their shoes and <laughs> it was those were hard to detect and there was a horse you know of the um the prince had a horse and yeah. the horse there was no way to get the horse the horse had to make three appearances and there was no mm-hmm. way to cross over and it was just a huge technical pain in the neck and we just didn't see how it was ever going to happen ultimately he made it work but yeah. but um but to me, I, I could probably live without that yeah. and, you know, go right to Ever After, you know. Yeah. It's a very full first act. And there yeah. are still people to this day that resent the second act. You know, the yeah. less and less, of course, as time yeah. has gone on. But, but so maybe that. Yeah. Um, I, and, and one that I is not true. I At the time, I remember not liking the song it takes two oh because to me it was just not on the level of ingenuity of some of the other songs mm-hmm. i can see i that. don't feel that way today no actually but i did then and i remember every time the song would come up i go oh here comes the friendship song <laughs> here comes the I, it takes two to yeah. you know it takes two you know la yeah. la la and but strangely enough you know whenever we would have to after into the woods open and we would do benefits and appearances and whatever and you always have to extract a song and we would always try to you know and with a lot of those scores, the Sunday score, the a lot of the late Sondheim collaborations, including all the ones with Lapine, it was hard to extract the song to yeah. do with somebody's benefit or whatever. So we would always card out it takes two. Yeah. Because it was self-contained. It, it was a, a, you know, that kind of friendship duo song that we all kind of know and love that that trope you know and so it became a very lovable song and now I quite enjoy the playfulness of it in here yeah but back then I was thinking just cut the song cut the song and every time a new song would come in for the baker and the baker's wife it would be deeper and more beautiful and Mm. no more and then you know um uh, for the baker's wife, she, that moments in the woods, which mm-hmm. I think came from Joanna's direct feedback to mm-hmm. Steve, enabled him to write moments in the woods. And you know the the songs written subsequent, you know, to um, it takes two all seem deeper and more meaningful to me. So anyway, it's it's a superficial answer to you know, to a highly subjective question. And I don't really feel that way anymore today. No. So 
Well, I still appreciate knowing it. I mean, listen, I could do two more hours with you. We got, we eventually, I want to hear about assassins and passion. I mean, you were in the Sondheim development chain for a long time, I guess. I did. I worked on the last, we're five, either five or six Sondheim collaborations, you know, the post Hal Prince ones. Yeah. I worked on all of them including five years spent working on what was first called Wise Guys. Oh, wow. I didn't other know you. Things. And I ended up, you know, that went on for quite a long time. Yeah. Years, years of development. And I ended up having to withdraw and move on to another project myself. And, uh, but yes, all of this, you know, every, every show has a story. Thank you for listening to Giants in the Sky, How Sondheim and Lapine Went into the Woods on the Broadway Podcast Network. Check out episode five with Joanna Gleason, the original Baker's wife. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.